I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Malachi, chapter 1. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Last book of the Old Testament. It's not Malachi, it's Malachi. Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through chapter 2, verse 2 will be our text this morning. This is our last message in our Made to Worship series. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we will begin... uh, an exposition of the book of Daniel. We're going to be walking through the book of Daniel for about, I don't know, um, 12, 13, 14 weeks, something like that. And uh, we'll be walking through that book together as we seek to uh, dive into God's Word together um, on the Lord's Day. Looking forward to that. But this morning, we want to turn our attention to Malachi chapter 1. Our text will be verse 6 down through chapter 2, verse 2. Let's stand together as we honor the reading of God's Word. This is the word of the Lord, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? by saying the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name is, will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it. When you say that the Lord's table is polluted, its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. You say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to lay it to heart, to hear your word, and to be changed by it, that we may honor you for who you truly are. For you are a great king, O Lord, and your name will be feared among every nation. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Complacency is deadly. Complacency is deadly. 
military and other national security agencies often remind us that one of the greatest threats that we face in America is not, although it is true, is not necessarily the threat of a foreign enemy or a terrorist. The greatest threat that we have is our own complacency. Complacency certainly can be deadly, for when a nation or anyone grows complacent for that matter, it becomes most vulnerable to attack and harm. Thinking about that in the Christian life, we could say that a complacent Christian is a vulnerable Christian. Complacency in your faith can be deadly, can do you harm, can bring much destruction in your life. Complacency, more specifically, in our worship of God, not only makes us vulnerable, but it reveals something drastically wrong in our hearts. Here in the book of Malachi, we find the people of God, specifically here in this text, the priests being rebuked for their complacency. The people of God had now returned from exile They had rebuilt the wall. They had rebuilt the city. Jerusalem was now kind of back, not necessarily to its previous glorious days, but it was was coming back. The temple had been reconstructed. They had recommitted themselves even to God to be his people and to serve him only. It wasn't too much longer once they had settled back into the promised land and seen the things rebuilt, that complacency had set in. The Old Testament does not end well. The Old Testament does not end on a positive note with with the people of God in the city of God praising God. It ends on a bad note. And then there are 400 years of silence before the coming of Christ. It's recorded for us in the New Testament to bring hope. So here in the book of Malachi, we see God rebuking his people, primarily here the priests, for their complacency in worship. It's a reminder to us that God takes worship with the utmost seriousness. Let's just ask Nadab and Abihu. Leviticus chapter 10. These were priests, sons of Aaron, that offered unauthorized fire to the Lord. They, they, went through, they went to a worship service there, if you will, and they, they performed the wrong thing with a wrong heart, and God consumed them with fire, and the Bible says they died. Now, we're not saying that if you come here with wrong motives today that fire is going to come down and consume you. But it's just a reminder to us that when it comes to this practice of worship, whether it's worship in life or worship gathered corporately today as a congregation, God is taking this serious. Here in Malachi, we're served well by being reminded about the danger of complacency. 
specifically complacency in our worships. And so we wanna look today at, at complacent worship, which is what we want to avoid so that we can bring honor and glory to God. And we wanna do this by looking at three things. We wanna look at the cause of complacent worship. We wanna consider the problem or the, the essence of complacent worship. And then we want to consider the solution to complacent worship. So we wanna see the cause, the essence, the solution. Those are the three points that we're gonna hang our hats off this morning from this text. We're gonna let God's word inform us and change us so that by the grace of God, for the glory of God, we will not be complacent in our worship of him. So let's consider these things together this morning, the cause of complacent worship. When you look at the priest here, the, the complacency, the carelessness of their hearts in their temple responsibilities, we see it reveal itself in a couple of ways. We see that in verse 6b through verse 8, that they're being accused, specifically in verse 7, by offering polluted food upon the altar. They're, they're, they're despising the name of the Lord. They're bringing polluted offerings. They're bringing not the best of the animals for sacrifice, but they're bringing sick animals, lame animals. Some of those animals have been stolen. Reminded in Leviticus chapter 22, verses 17 through 25, the Lord commanded his people to bring acceptable offerings to him and he forbade blind and disabled animals. He wanted the best of the animals brought to be sacrificed to him. And here in Malachi chapter one, it was not that. So they were offering unacceptable offerings to the Lord. Not only that, in verse 13, we see how they saw their worship task as wearisome. These were priests that did not look forward to going to the temple of the Lord and did not look forward to engaging in the worship of God. They saw it as a burden. Why was this the case? What was driving this complacency? What was it that led them to bring blemished offerings to the Lord? What was it that, that led them to, to see the worship of God, the highest privilege and joyful calling that we could ever have? What, what led them to see the worship of God as wearisome? In short, we could point in this text to two things. One, they had a deficient view of God. A deficient view of God. Now you remember that we began this worship series in Psalm 99 on New Year's Day on how the God of worship must be central in our worship or else our worship will be flawed from the get-go. And you'll notice, by the way, how this has kind of come up in about every sermon on this series. And so for us to, to, to have a radically God-centered view of worship is not just something like it's a good idea. It is absolutely essential. The priest's view of God was deficient. Notice verse six, God begins to rebuke them and he says, where is my honor 
Where is my fear? Oh, you priests who despise my name. You see, it seems that the priests had, had no fear of God. It seemed that the priests were, were not seeking his honor. And it all stems to the fact that they had a deficient view of him. Our worship of God will always be driven by our view of God. Worship of God will always be driven by our view of God. And so when our view of God, our understanding of God, our, our consideration of who God is, when that begins to shrink, our worship will begin to shrink. When it is great and when it is flourishing and when our view and understanding of God is thoroughly saturated with God's own revelation of himself, then our worship of him would be much different. Reminded in verse 11 that God's own goal from the rising of the sun to its setting is that his name will be great among the nations. That his name will be seen as great. He says that a couple of times in this text, you'll notice. He says, my name's going to be great among the nations. And it's as if he's rebuking the priest saying, you are not making my name great. You are not beholding me for who I am. But I'm here to tell you, priest, with you or without you, my name will be great among the nations. Friends, God is offended when our view of him is deficient. He takes offense to that. Just notice how he responds to the priest's cold complacency. Verse 10, he says, I have no pleasure in you. You know, of the many things that I would never want to hear, especially from God is for him to look at me and say, I have no pleasure in you. He says, I have no pleasure in you. I will not accept an offering from your hand. In verse 10, verse 14, he says, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock, who has the appropriate means to bring an appropriate worship, to, uh, uh, an offering in worship of me and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished instead. So there's cursing here. Verse two of chapter two, you see the same thing. In verse three, God just gets quite explicit. He says, behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces. That's inspired of the scriptures, right? This is how serious God takes his worship. He doesn't respond well to complacency, does he? It's because of his worth. It's because of who he is. You see, the priests had built this, this system of worship around themselves. In, in some ways, they were greedy. They were making money off this gig, weren't they? They had a deficient view of God. But a second reason that they grew complacent was because they had a discounted view of grace. Not only had these priests forgotten who God was, they had lost sight of what he had done. Look back in verses two through five. I didn't read these, but I wanted to say them for now. God begins this 
this oracle, we're told in verse one, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? <laughs> They've forgotten. God says, I love you. And they're like, how? You sure hadn't proven it. And the Lord says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals on the desert. He goes on and talks in verse four about the, the wickedness of those people. Do you notice what God is saying here? God is actually saying to the priests, one of the reasons that you do not worship me is because you have forgotten grace. He actually uses the doctrine of election here as something that they have lost track of as a means to indict them because they weren't, they weren't worshiping him rightly. He says, have you not forgotten that I have chosen you people? Do you not remember that? You both were equally sinful, and yet I have lavished my love on Jacob. I have called you to myself. I have given you grace. I have loved you when I didn't have to. I loved you. I pursued you. I brought you to myself, and I made you my own. How can you say, how have you loved me? They had lost sight of God's sovereign goodness. Not only had God grown deficient in their eyes. They had forgotten what grace was. And this is just another reminder of how critical it is for us to be reminded of the gospel on a daily basis. You know, each May, our country celebrates Memorial Day, rightly so. It looks back to the countless sacrifices that men and women have made so, that, so as to preserve our freedoms. And we should be, as a nation, grateful for such sacrifices and reminded of what it's taken to, to bring us to this point of where we continue to be able to, uh, to, res to enjoy our freedoms. But for the Christian, every day is Memorial Day. Every day is an opportunity for us to be reminded of the goodness of God. Every day is an opportunity for us to be reminded of how gracious God is. God forbid that we would ever get to the point of saying, God, how have you loved me? I know that's what the Bible says, but how is that? Friends, when we lose sight of the greatness of God and the grace of God, we're in a world of trouble. Hebrews reminds us of the importance to remind each other of these things. In Hebrews chapter three, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another once a year, every other month, once a week, no, every day. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Why? So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
Every day, we need to be reminded of the gracious work of God in our lives because we are prone to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need the gospel in our lives every day. The same gospel that saves us is the same good news that sustains us and will present us guiltless in the end before a holy and righteous God. So the cause of complacent worship is to forget who God is and to forget about what God has done. When you lose sight of God's supremacy, of his greatness and his attributes, his, his, who he is, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his love, his loving kindness, his patience, his provision, all of these things, when you begin to lose sight of that and, and God grows distant from you, that's one cause. And when you, when you get to the point of presuming upon God's grace or forgetting it all together, worship will dwindle. That's the cause, the essence of complacent worship. Number two, see this in verses six and seven. God again says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? The Lord has already in verse, verse two expressed his, his sovereign covenant love for his people. And God's relationship to them and us is described affectionately here through this gracious work of bringing us to himself, this gracious work of adoption. And now the Lord refers, he's using an illustration. He says, he refers to the honor that a son is to give to a father and the appropriate fear or respect that a servant would give to a master. And then he concludes, yet God's love far outweighs any love that an earthly father could have for an earthly son and any master or any honor that a master would give to a servant. God's love is far greater than any earthly relationship. And he says, you, you show honor here, you show fear here, then where's, where's my honor? Where's my fear? It's our failure to honor and fear God. Our expression of complacent worship of God reveals how much or how less we value him. Friends, let me just say it this way. When we're finding it a, a struggle to worship, when we find ourselves complacent in the worship of God, whether it's in a gathering like this or throughout the week, you just find yourself kind of complacently going throughout life, kind of engaging God when you've got time for it and just kind of going through the motions. You just need to ask, are you bored with God? Is God boring to you? because that's really what's happened. You've forgotten who he is, you've forgotten what he's done, and he's just boring. <laughs> There's nothing boring about God, but that's what he's come, that, that's what's happened. When you find yourself just, just kind of going throughout life, spiritual boredom is a reality. It, spiritual boredom is, is something that manifests itself in cold, complacent worship. When your worship is cold, when your worship is complacent, your view of God is deficient and your, reminder, your remembrance of grace is absent. God has become boring to you. 
And you just have sought to replace them with something else. Go back to the idolatry sermon. Pastor Jeremy preached. And spiritual boredom could mean one of two things. And I want you to hear me because I think there, there, there are a lot of people, I think all of us get bored with God at some point. And, and here's, two reasons, here's two reasons that may happen. One, it may mean you're not a Christian. If God is consistently boring to you and you have no, no desire to be in his word, to hear from him on a regular basis, you might not be, you may very well probably aren't a Christian. But we're reminded that God is indeed gracious. He is good. That he has done everything necessary to give you eternal life if you would simply Trust in him, turning from your sin, trusting in him by faith. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian friend, we're always delighted to have non-Christians here. And we would just be honored to be able to just try to help you and encourage you in your own life, in your own walk, and that we would just want to remind you that our hope is not in ourselves. And so if you come here today and you're not a Christian, you're thinking, why, you know, what's the deal with these people? It's, trust me, it's not us. It's the Lord that's changed us. And friend, he can change you if you just simply trust in him and quit trusting in yourself, quit seeking the things of this world. And that is the call for you. If you do not know Christ, look to him and be saved. So you may, you may not be a Christian if, if God is boring to you. Or... You might be a Christian that you've, and, and, and you've allowed the vision of God's greatness and memory of his grace to be clouded. You're just distracted by wrong things. There's the essence of complacent worship is a distracted heart that participates in vain religious activity. There's nothing worse to me on a Sunday morning than coming here and not wanting to be here. And friend, we can blame everyone else around us for that. We can look for all kinds of excuses. <sighs> I guess I'm going to church today. You can blame a lot of things and a lot of people for that. But the place to start is in your own hearts. There's nothing worse than coming to worship and not wanting to be there. And it's likely that some of you are here today. You're here right now, not of an, out of an overwhelming sense of excitement and expectation to seek the Lord, which was evident probably in your singing of his praises. What about last week? Or even now as you're kind of checking in and out on the sermon. Trust me, I can't see if that's really happening because I can't see your heart. As long as you're looking here and smiling, all is good, right? You know, that may be the case, but, but some of you may be here right now and you just simply don't want to be here, not, and you're here just out of habit or because maybe a parent told you or brought you. You didn't have an option or for some other reason. But frankly, this worship service has been nothing but a drag, And you're just ready for something better. Maybe some football and beer would be great right now. Something better than this.
Maybe you can relate to verse 13. What a weariness this is. So what do we do when that happens? Friends, the only way that our complacency and our coldness can be thawed is by warming it to the beauty and truthfulness of the gospel. I can't tell you how many times my sinful, cold, hateful, discontent heart has accompanied me to that seat right there. And then we begin to sing the praises of God. And we begin to be reminded of how great thou art. We begin to be reminded of how firm a foundation we've got in Christ. We begin to be encouraged that God would reveal these wonderful truths in his ancient word to save us and sustain us. We begin to be encouraged that God has given his Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, to seal us and to sustain us throughout all life. And oh, we begin to be reminded of how gracious God has been, how he's given grace to us and peace to us. Friends, if all of those were just, if that was just noise to you this morning, there was something there for you to feed on. You needed that. I needed that. And there's been countless times when I've come in here and I'm just frustrated with life and aggravated about something and I sing and I'm just, I'm, I'm struck down in one moment and built up in the next. Friends, I need the gospel just as much today as I needed it the first day I believed. Not that I'm beginning saved over and over. We believe in one, one, a one-time deal there, don't we? We're justified once. But friends, God sustains us with this. There's nothing, there, there's nothing boring about God. If God is boring to you, the problem's not with him. The problem is with you, friend. Don't starve your heart and mind of the overwhelming, inexhaustible truth of who God is and what he has done. So the solution, I'm kind of already getting into point three. The solution. The simple way of answering the solution is that we need the gospel and that we need the truth to remind us of what is right and what is true, what God has done, who he is. That's the answer to the solution. There's no nice formula here. There's no 10 steps, 12 steps, do this, 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 this. Well, you need the gospel. You need the truth. You need God. You need to see him rightly. And, and that happens throughout your own walk every day as, as a Christian. But you also need this. This worship gathering, not because we've all got it figured out and put together. That's actually not the case. I wanna remind us of what Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25 say. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. He, he said, let's consider how we can encourage each other to do righteousness, to live well, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but 
encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One of the ways that you fight a cold, complacent heart is by regularly gathering with Christians and not neglecting this moment. This hour, I would argue, is the most important hour, okay, hour and a half, you have all week. It's not because I'm preaching. It's not that at all. It's not because of who's up here on the platform. This is the most important gathering. It's because when we come together corporately to encourage each other, to sing to God, to sing to one another, to be reminded of who God is, to be reminded of what God has done, to be encouraged and and stirred. That's why we need to guard this hour. This is not just one of those things that, oh yeah, I'll go to church if I've got time, or okay, I've got these things I need to do this week and okay, I'll get church next week. No, this is a priority. This is primary. I mean, we we need to think about structuring our schedule around corporate worship. Not because we're legalists, but because this is what God does to encourage his people. And as, as we have opportunity to corporately gather to sing his praise and to be changed by him. John Piper said this, corporate worship is one of the best remedies for our sin-sick souls. Without fail, trials and troubles renew every week. Big or small, they draw our gaze away from Jesus and distract us from God's mercy and grace. Piper's listen to this message. Did you hear what he said? He said, big or small, the trials, the distractions, they take away our gaze from Jesus and distract us from God's amazing grace. They, they tend to help us have a deficient view of God and distract us so that we're not thinking about God's grace. And then he goes on and says, every Sunday morning is an opportunity for God to revive you from the weak stupor. As you proclaim his goodness and mercy with dear brothers and sisters, God will melt your heart again. He will strike down your pride with the gospel and he won't leave you down. In his mercy, he'll pick you up and give you strength for the week ahead. The solution for complacent worship is to be reminded of the gospel, to be reminded of who God is. And one of the ways that we do that is our corporate worship gatherings. Worship shapes us. I don't know if you've understood that. This is a a sanctifying means of God. This is one of the means God uses to shape us, to strengthen us, to, to make us more like Jesus. In a book called Rhythms of Grace, Mike Cosper said this, for better or worse, Our worship, regardless of our tradition or musical style or culture, is shaping the hearts and minds of our congregations. So what we do on Sunday matters. So what we do here, it's just not randomly thrown together. We do things here on purpose. The structure and the differing elements of our worship service 
serve an intentional purpose to remind us of the greatness of God and to encourage us in the grace of God. Now, let's get super practical for a moment. I want you to see this practically. So just want to think about the structure of our worship. People are, "Ah, I'm against structure. Just feel the Lord and feel our way through worship. Well, that sounds super spiritual, but I think when you read the Bible, you see all kinds of structure. Now, we can overdo the structure. I get that. We can almost put God in a box and almost be too regimented. There certainly ought to be freedom and room for the Holy Spirit to move in our midst. I'm not saying that we're against that, not at all. But there are, whether churches know it or not, every church has a structure. Every church has a structure or a fancy word some of you may be familiar with, a liturgy. And it, for some, it may be a very elaborate, detailed liturgy, while others, it may be more informal and simple. We have a liturgy here. We have a structure here. It's, it's more along the informal and simple. Because um, some of you grew up in, in maybe Presbyterian or Methodist church and, and other, other denominations where, where there's a very strict liturgy present. I think every congregation has a liturgy of some kind. It may not be as visible as others. But I just want you to, just for a moment, even take your bulletin. This right here. And you can see our structure. It's an intentional structure we put together every single week with flexibility and with freedom. We begin with what's called adoration. Okay, the welcome. After the welcome, we begin with adoration. In the welcome, by the way, we're being called to worship through a, 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 a scripture. But adoration, it's, here's where we want to read Bible passages, sing songs and pray around the truth of who God is so that we do not forget, like these priests, who he is. The way we want to sing God's character and attributes. And we want to go into a time of confession. Oftentimes this is through a prayer or silent reflection or even a song that we will sing as we realize who it is that we come before. We are confronted with our sin and we want to have an opportunity, even in our service, to confess our sins to God. And then thanksgiving. Because we are sinners, Jesus came to save us, to redeem us. We're not left in our sin, wallowing in our confession, but we have hope because of what Christ did. So we wanna sing of what he's done. We wanna be thankful for what he's done. And again, we do that in various ways, through song, through prayer, even through our giving. It's a means of worship. Instruction. So we come to Christ, we want to be fed and nourished by him. And then our response as we leave, we want to do so encouraged and enabled to go out in obedience to him. And so in summary, our liturgy, our structure, our worship service is shaped by the gospel. That's on purpose. We have a gospel shape, even in the flow of how our service goes so that we even structurally can be reminded of our life in the gospel. So adoration, God is holy. Confession, we are sinners. Thanksgiving, Jesus saves us. Instruction, Jesus strengthens us. Response, Jesus sends us. Just a great overview of the gospel, even in the structure. But then the elements of worship, because we need to be reminded of who God is and what he does, the Bible has to be central, feeding us in our worship, where God has most clearly and fully and truthfully revealed himself, the scriptures. 
So as we go through a worship gathering, we want to have the Bible central. So we want to sing the word. One of the songs that we sing here, whatever style, whatever we're singing needs to be biblically informed, biblically saturated. Even if it's not straight scripture that we're singing, it needs to be content that comes directly from the scriptures. We want to sing the word. We want to pray the word. Our prayers need to be biblically informed prayers. We want to read the word. So our scripture readings in the the gathering, we know that that Paul commanded Timothy to, to devote himself to the public reading of scripture. Preaching the word. We want to have expository preaching present in our service so that the word is informing us. We want to see the word through the baptism, through the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So just last week we had the Lord's Supper. So it's a visible manifestation of grace and what God has done for us in Christ. In a few weeks, we're having some baptisms again. Again, we're going to see the word present there through, those, through that ordinance. And so whether you find worship a satisfying joy or a wearisome burden, friend, you need the blessing of congregational worship. We are shaped by this experience. We are formed by what we do here. Our beliefs, our lives are formed, shaped by worship. One wrote this, the gathering shapes our ordinary life and ordinary life shapes our experiences of the gathering. We gather not to escape these burdens and joys, but to bring them to a place where we acknowledge what is most true, most real, and most valuable. And the solution to our complacency is to be regularly reminded and confronted by the gospel. The solution to our complacency in worship is to gather together in worship, to be reminded time and time again of what is most true, what is most real, and what is most valuable. And friend, when we behold the greatness of our gracious God, when we see him for who he is, and when we're encouraged and sustained by what he's done, our complacency will give way to joy doesn't mean there won't be an ongoing battle because of our own sinful flesh, right? Worship is a battle. Friend, we can sing the praise of God, we can respond to the word of God, and we can go forth in the worship of God. When we see him for who he is, and when we are reminded what he's done for us, we can, with Isaac Watts, say, for the whole realm of nature mind that we're a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The truth of who God is and the truth of what God has done demands, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Father, as we think about the truth of who you are and the truth of what you've done. We, we were reminded 
yet again this Lord's Day, of what we have in Christ. Father, would you just continue to help our hearts be filled and stirred by the truth? And Lord, would you help us not to grow complacent or wearisome in our worship? And if that's where we find ourselves this morning, Lord, would you renew us? Would you stir our hearts? Would you warm our affections with the beauty of the gospel, with the truth of who you are, that indeed Christ may be our all, that you may be our treasure, and that we will go forth not in complacency, but in faithfulness and in joy. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.